Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. Assemble the men. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bob. Hi, I'm Brian. Today's episode is Assemble the Men, a chat about the gameplay and various systems and game modes in Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Meryl marries, we know the fate of Master Kazahira Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. So today we're going to do a more open discussion about the gameplay, missions, side menus, and all that jazz. Like we said in our first episode, this game is packed with modes, features, and secrets that we won't be able to comprehensively cover. It's also best to do this now, as almost all these systems evolve in Metal Gear Solid V, so it's a lot easier to plan some of that information in your mind now. Our story coverage means we've covered the main missions broadly, but I do want to talk about the gameplay with just a bit more detail. We'll go over the different types of missions and anything we feel is worth mentioning about them. This game doesn't have difficulty settings, but missions are graded with one to five skulls, one being easy and five being most difficult. So Metal Gear's bread and butter is stealth missions, and that is no difference in Peace Walker. The stealth controls aren't dissimilar from Metal Gear Solid 4, though it is pared down for a PSP game. The biggest change is the lack of mobility or shooting when in a prone position, In other words, laying on the ground, you can only move and fire in the crouched or standing position. And while it does feel like a simplified version of Metal Gear Solid 4, it is actually the first steps towards the Fox engine for Metal Gear Solid 5. Footprints again make noise in this game unless you are wearing the sneaking suit. Like Metal Gear Solid 4, you will be able to stalk walk if you press very lightly on the analog stick, muffling your footsteps. This means any stealthing you do, whether to do holdups or CQC, tends to be very deliberate in the early goings of this game. The enemy patrols are not quite as slow as they were in MGS3, so you will have to carefully time your approach. There are a handful of shootout missions during this game, where you have to clear the enemies in your path, lethally or not, before you can progress. Early on, there are some stealth versions of the shootout, where you have to eliminate guards, but they are not in an alert or know where you are such as in the prison village or before fighting the tank. These are very similar to the kind of the shootout that opens Metal Gear Solid 3 in Rasviet, uh, where you can either stealth or blow away your opposition. Near the end, there are two bigger shootout missions, one in the mine quarry and another in the U.S. base in Nicaragua as you fight your way back to Coldman. In both of these battles, you will be under constant assault by high-powered enemies and kidnapper drones. We've talked already about the vehicle boss battles. The game has three proper, the Lav G at the Banana Factory, the Tank at the Train Depot, and the Hind in the Waterfalls. And an additional Hind will bother you in one of the late game shootouts. 
However, in the side ops, you will get to face off against even more vehicles, usually on one of the maps from above, but with way more troops that will require high-level Fulton equipment to S-rank. There may be other ATVs and tanks, or Harriers and jets, and other types of choppers as well. With these, it's almost always best to blow these guys away the first time playing these missions, and then you can come back for the stealth and non-lethal and Fultoning on repeat passes with better equipment. There are several AI weapons in the main mission, which we've covered in depth, the Pupa, Chrysalis, Cocoon, and Peace Walker itself, which you usually play by um, targeting the main uh, AI pod on the machines the first time through, and then on subsequent playthroughs, you come back and you target the parts of the robot that you want for your own Metal Gear Zeke, such as the railgun, the radome, etc. There are four types of memory boards you can dislodge by attacking certain parts of uh, the AI weapons, there are mobility, which affects movement, of course, sensibility, which affects search capability, attack for offense, and control for response time. If Peace Walker has any major weaknesses, or let's say shortcomings when compared to the rest of the series, it's probably the lack of boss characters and fights that have defined the series so far, and in my opinion, there, are, there will be some good ones in the Phantom Pain as well. Quiet, The Man on Fire, and Eli, but I'll be the unpopular guy now and say I broadly like the Skulls as well. So in that regard, Peace Walker is the only game without some sort of enemy special forces unit or enemy that requires small-scale battle. I think Peace Walker, the game and story, do not suffer for this. The only negative is in comparison to other titles. Mm-hmm. I like most of the characters here, Strangelove and Coleman and Galvez, and I also enjoy that none of them are martial characters or meant to be a physical threat to Big Boss. For Snake and for us, this story is more about the internal conflict within the protagonist. I really like, like we talked about it, I really like the Pupa bosses in, the, in general. I like, I like Pupa is what I'm thinking of. And then like, I, I think like that kind of gets old, but I like those bosses as like a concept. They just, I don't think, they're not as immediately memorable because they aren't Metal Gear, they aren't like Metal Gear characters. You know, they aren't, I don't know. If you showed a picture of them and, and explained them to somebody They'd be significantly less interesting than any other Metal Gear, Metal Gear games bosses, but like they're, I just like fighting them for the most part. Mm-hmm. Chrysalis can die though, an annoying fight. Uh, it's probably most like <laughs> the original Metal Gear Solid in that you fight a tank and a mm-hmm. hind D, but you also are fighting the regular uh, normal bosses alongside those. I think one of the fun parts of Metal Gear Solid 1 and 2 is that when you have those vehicle fights, it's like Raven is driving the tank or Liquid is driving the Hind D or mm-hmm. something like that. And while these are nominally controlled by an AI that's supposed to be the boss, I think, you know, if like Coldman or Galvez was driving this, I don't know if it'd be better or worse, um, but that is just like, there's no real character behind who's even piloting these things uh, compared to the other mech fights or other vehicle fights. at the end. Uh, yes, except for Paz, you are correct. Um, that does show up in the end, and maybe they were holding back for that one fight or whatever. Uh, I don't. I don't personally have a problem with it. I mean, it's. I wouldn't say. Yeah, I'd probably still have these bosses overall at the bottom. But that's just more because uh, maybe MGS4, but I don't know. I still think there's a couple of those Beauty and Beast fights that are that are good. We talked about that, obviously. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where I'd have Beast Walker. Certainly in the bottom group as far as bosses go for this series, but it's that's, again, it's kind of the signature of the series, so it's not really a bad thing. 
it's it mostly fails in relation to the other solid titles and in no other way. Mm-hmm. Um, for most games, these would be perfectly adequate boss fights. I, I just I just think because Metal Gear is, I think especially since after three they never really regained that mojo of great boss fights. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I'm going to make a defense of some of them when we get to the Phantom Pain, but nothing is going to beat you know Foxhound or Dead Cell or the Cobra Unit. Most of all, I think it's kind of been diminishing returns since three. Well, with one exception, I guess. I don't know. I don't know if you've done enough of oh. uh, Revengeance's bosses yet. Um, I have only fought the first uh, boss in Revengeance. Oh, I don't even think I fought the first boss. Because you, you fought Rex, right? I did. Oh, yeah. I did fight Ray. And I yeah, did get into... Um, I did fight one of the other cyborg samurais, like Jetstream. Sam? Is that it? That's not, that's not a real boss. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, right, a, right. It's more of an encounter, but you don't yeah. fight him. Yeah. So I haven't done one of the proper hand-to-hand fights, but I have fought the first uh, Ray battle. So um, I don't think I'm including the only Ray battle. <laughs> yes. I had a second Ray pop up, but it was just kind of like a mid-level kind of enemy, but not a boss. Yeah, it's not, it's not a boss. Yeah, there's no boss fights with them anymore. You're beyond them yes. at this point. That's the- Man, I can't wait till we get to that game. Coming soon to Podcast Sounds Frontier. <laughs> We can run down some of the side ops now. Side ops utilize main mission maps, but often are short, single objective quests that require you to complete a task and then find the exfiltration zone for extraction via Fulton. Some side ops are straight up just harder versions of main missions, such as the second and custom AI weapon fights. There are 128 extra ops in total. The first group are marksmanship or target practice missions. Some of these are purely practice missions where you can just run around and shoot and work on your guns, and the others are actual time challenges or accuracy challenges. Some will take place in Mother Base's target practice room, others will take place in the Kill House, which is a more dynamic shooting gallery, and then some will take place in actual mission maps from the game story. When you shoot these targets, you will get more points for shots uh, in the head or in the center of mass, but you will get some points and knock the target down if you hit the kind of like cardboard uh, like cutouts that they have. It's very similar to like poli- police shooting galleries or CIA mm. shooting galleries, um, those kind of paper targets hanging. And then I think one of the key things with doing these well is leveling up your weapons. And I don't just mean developing stronger weapons, but in Peace Walker, there's a mechanic where the more you use a weapon, it levels up so that Snake's aim becomes steadier as he fires it. And that is really key to making sure you get those headshots. I'm not a huge fan of it just because, especially this game, like, if you go through missions without even firing your gun, you're not leveling up your weapons. Uh, so it can be kind of a pain in the ass to go back and level them up. And I'm pretty sure they ditched this for Metal Gear Solid Five. The next type of side op is Fulton Extraction Missions. And sometimes these are non-snake missions uh, where you have to uh, control some other player or other member of the MSF unit. Usually you have to find a prisoner or soldier to extract from the map 
And sometimes the prisoner is already knocked out or the soldier is already knocked out because Snake did it on his main mission story. These are pretty simple, and the targets you usually extract have good stats for MSF. Next up, you can recover documents. These are pretty much the same thing as Fulton Extraction. Instead of saving people, you're picking up pieces of paper that usually allow you to develop better gear. There's target demolition or item capture, which are basically C4 missions, where you either have to blow a hole in a wall for Snake to pass through, or you can blow up a box that has important items. Uh, No, not important items, but uh, items, and that's kind of collect those items and you win the mission. There are several base defense or eliminate missions where you basically just have to kill or neutralize every enemy that you have to face. Um, The eliminate ones are basically enemies are running at you, uh, kill them all or neutralize them all non-lethally. And then base defense is basically just a king of the hill version of that where you have like certain sectors of the map you have to defend, but it's still just a a rush of enemies that you have to uh, neutralize. There are a couple destroy all trucks missions where you are basically just standing on a bridge and trucks are going to be driving by and you have to blow them up. Uh, Some of these are like, you know, you just load out with all your rocket launchers and you just keep hitting the trucks as they drive past. They will try to drive one in front of another or, you know, create a blockade so you can't knock them all out. There's also a variation of this mission where you have to destroy all the trucks in a convoy with a single bullet from a single gun. Uh, You have to basically time blowing up some drum cans in the middle of the highway right at the point where it would affect all the things around you. So um, these are not really related significantly to any kind of gameplay mechanic, or I mean, you're shooting, but um, these are just kind of their own little, these are the least like any of the missions. Every All the other side ops I mentioned so far are very similar to main ops in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, this one is just completely different. Um, and along those lines, there's also missions where you have to eliminate all the kidnapper drones or balloons in what are called Puyan missions, uh, which is basically where you just sit either at a gun turret or with your own heavy machine gun and various things are flying through the air and you have to shoot them as they go. The Puyan missions also have this very like Chuck E. Cheesy kind of music set to them. Um, It's really kind of goofy. It's a bunch of balloons rising up with soldiers attached to them and you basically just have to shoot the balloons and the soldiers fall presumably to their deaths. It's kind of kind of really goofy, but, uh, you know, fun target practice nonetheless. Uh, running down some of the other ones real quick, there's Claymore Disarmament, where you just have to deactivate Claymores. This one will show up again in the Phantom Pain. There are Perfect Stealth missions, where you have to go through a version of a main story mission, but no alerts, no kills. Um, there are the Armored Weapon Battles, which we talked about. And uh, there are holdup missions where you are only given a banana and you have to go and kind of hold up all the enemies who do not see that you do not have a gun in your hands. Kind of fun. You can also just develop a banana, uh, which I don't know what purpose it has as a weapon, but, you know, you can do it. Some of the more fun side missions or interesting ones, at least, are the various dates you can go on. You can go on a date with both Kaz and Paz. With Kaz... Uh, What is recommended is you put on some music, you can wear a tuxedo if you want, but you could also go, um, what's it called, naked, and if you go naked, Kaz will go in his swim trunks, uh, so you can get some nice uh, man flesh action going there. Um, But it's generally recommended if you want to get the S rank, you wear a tuxedo, you go up to Kaz, 
and you're on the beach, uh, the one that you kind of have your opening mission on, and it's a, like sunset, so it's romantic. And you go up and you see QC Kaz, but you don't actually like throw him down or do anything. You just go up, so you kind of like grab a hold of him and let go, like you're giving him hugs. And then you'll get like various hearts over Kaz's character to indicate like he likes this. Um, and you basically need to keep doing that, uh, trying to get as many hearts as possible to get that S rank. The other way to do this is um, you have uh, communications uh, options in your uh, repertoire in this game where you can like say various catchphrases or sayings um, and you can win more as you complete missions. And if you use certain triggers with Kaz, um, he will respond accordingly. Like you can trigger the kept you waiting, huh? Line and Kaz will say, can't wait any longer. You're pretty good. Cut it out. You're making me blush and box time. Yeah. Get inside. And then you can both <laughs> get inside the love box and it'll shake around like they're doing it. And that'll also S rank the mission and they're very good friends. Just, mm-hmm. they're, just, they're, they're good friends. That's it's it. like the two men found like in the ashes of Pompeii, like holding each other, cradling, just good friends. And uh, when you get your uh, mission score for these, you also get a, a Miller affinity score, uh, which is just kind of funny. I don't think it's really useful in any other way, um, but it is just kind of a funny measurement in this. Going over to Paz, who I will just reiterate is actually about 24, 25 years old, um, not the 16 years old she's posing as during most of the story. Um, Still a little goofy, um, and presumably you do this mission before you even know that. Um, But regardless, to S-rank this, you're going to want to get in your tux. If you get all naked, um, like you do for Kaz, uh, Paz will remark that you've got quite a body, but she will run away from you upon approach. Um, there, you don't want to see QC her, which good, probably good to not touch her. Um, and if you do, she, again, she'll run away or you'll fail the mission. Um, and this one, you just have to kind of dress nice, play some nice music. Um, and then you can slowly basically do the same thing as you did with Miller, where you kind of trigger the right co-ops communication lines, and then you get into the love box with her again. The last mode I want to mention here in the side ops is the monster hunter mode, which I haven't actually done yet um, and probably won't until the next time I revisit this game. So probably like next year, but uh, just to kind of go over what it is, I'm going to read uh, this excerpt to unlock any of the monster hunter ops. You must first listen to all of the Chico's uh, tapes in the game, then do extra ops 29. But instead of heading to the extraction point, head down to Playa del Alba. Kaz will mention that there's some weird-looking animal by the dock. When you approach the boat, a cutscene will occur in which Snake talks to the animal, which is a a cat creature named Trenya, and she will tell you all about hunting monsters on the island. And when it's finished, you will have Extraps 121, which is the first Monster Hunter mission, and I believe there are subsequent ones after that. You ever do those, Brian? No, I I watched the video a while ago, though, when I played the game originally. Yeah, they're they're pretty fun. It's it's a neat crossover. It's not very essential or even after you, you know, let's say spend 30 to 40 hours playing and beating this game, whether you actually want to take the time to do this is kind of a crapshoot. Um it's kind of superfluous in that way. As all I honestly as most side ups are just good. That's what they're supposed to be. Yeah. Um in uh the Phantom Pain, some of the side ops become a little more relevant. Like mm-hmm. there will be side ops that unlock main story ops and vice versa. But this I think this specifically, the side ops feel a just to get some more game in there, um, given the limited assets on the PSP 
uh, console. And given how easy it is to do little five-minute missions, that's exactly what you want if you're you know, riding the train. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's uh, very mobile-friendly because um, I might not want to do one of the later chapter missions while on a train, but jumping in and doing a target practice or a Fulton extraction mission is super easy. Uh, a lot of these missions, once you know what you need to do, you can clear the field in like less than a minute or two for the most part. I think a lot of them, you have to do it in under two and a half minutes to get that S rank as well. I'm with you, boss. We'll see how it turns out together. Brian and I played some Peace Walker co-op as well. Turned out, it's really fun. We both played a snake when doing missions, but for me, Brian's character just looked like a standard MSF guy and vice versa. The missions we did were a stealth mission, which is the, uh, we did the cloud travel to the cloud forest mission, which is probably one of the most expansive stealth maps in the game and also has enemies that are using camouflage and are somewhat CQC resistant. So it's a little more of a dynamic arena for playing around with. We did a shootout mission, uh, which I believe was the mine cave one. I forget which uh, shootout mission we did. Yeah, it was that one. Yeah. Then we did the Hind D vehicle fight uh, in the Waterfall of Death or whatever it's called, uh, which I think is probably the most dynamic of the vehicle fights because there's cover. The Hind has some kind of overhead coverage of you. Um, there's a lot of tight cor- corners, so you can do a little bit of stealth before you devolve into blowing the shit out of everything. And then lastly, uh, we did the AI weapon uh, Peace Walker, uh, which I think we talked about briefly in our big boss episode. Um, it's just, it's a very big map. Um, and because Peace Walker is generally a very strong, you know, end of game kind of boss, um, it does, you know, it's a good one for us to actually play together with for like, you know, a 10 to 15 minute time span, even though with two people, it's not like it was difficult or that we failed at it. We did mess up some uh, drops though. No, I mean, it wasn't like easy. It wasn't, it wasn't autopilot. It wasn't hard. No. And I think there might be like a temptation where, oh, there's two of us. So let's just both of us just like do what we would normally do solo um, and think we could take down the boss. But it actually worked a lot better if we worked in tandem. Like you were taking out drill mines while I was, you know, hitting Peace Walker at the same time, or you were resupplying and I was resupplying. And I, I don't think you had the battle suit, but we made sure to we kind of have similar loadouts so we could use the same ammo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you actually use it to coordinate is definitely, you get the most out of the experience. Um, but, you know, I can imagine people just being like, I'm going to do my own thing, but as long as someone else is here doing their thing, we should be fine. Um, one thing I liked about the co-op mission is that there's, if you're in close proximity to the other player, you can actually sync up. So like if I got close to Brian and held down the action button, my character would just do whatever Brian's doing. So if he's crouching or sneaking along a wall, my character will just kind of follow behind him. Like it's like a SNES RPG where you can see your whole party following you behind you. Um, that was kind of cool. Um, and it's probably going to be even cooler or would look even cooler if we were playing with like four or eight different people. Um, and just to see the long chain of MSF people following snake as he does his thing, a snake train going. <laughs> so you gotta do uh, anything else you want to say about these, uh, co-op missions or what you thought about playing? I mean, I thought it was really fun. It was, it, it's, it's, I don't, it's weird that I don't have like anything super in depth to say about it, even though it's co-op metal gear, which I think that had been in, in V, we would have shared our pants. Like like the, the like the Metal Gear world would shit shit their collective pants, but I don't know. It's it's really fun. <clears throat> it worked really well. Um, I guess the only other thing I have to say is I'm very happy that they 
Uh, do not you do not need any kind of online subscription to anything to actually play it because we were trying to get you Xbox Live Gold, and it turned out you don't need that at all. You just you just jump on it, which is yeah, great. Just need an internet connection, which is great. Um, I don't know if it's because it's an older legacy game now or that's just how it always was, but it was really nice. Even if like it took me a second to figure out how to access the Xbox 360 uh, live controls uh, from yeah. the Xbox One, but I mean that. Given that I was able to do it for free without more than like five minutes of work, I can't really complain that much. No. But I, I do agree with you. Like this would have ruled in V. Um, because imagine if like one of us got to be quiet and the other got to be snake, and you could one can do sniper cover while the other stealths around. Imagine if one of us got to be D Dog. Oh man, or D Horse. I can shit everywhere I want. <laughs> um But like, yeah, that would be a lot of fun, especially because of how big those maps are. And that's I like one of the strongest defenses of Metal Gear Solid V's open world is that it really allows you to like get creative with how you want to infiltrate, what angle you want to infiltrate, and how you want to set up cover or call in like helicopter attacks. Um, and being able to do that co-op, I think, would have been ideal if possible. topic today is actually a bunch of small topics that are found under the mother base menus. We've talked about most of this stuff during game coverage, but we can dive a little deeper here and talk about how we do MSF base management and whatnot. The first thing I actually want to call out, though, is the music for the mother base menu. Reminds me a lot of the score to the first Terminator movie from 1984, uh, no real point to that, but I do think we're going to talk a little bit about Terminator 1984 when we get to The Phantom Pain, a movie also set in 1984, um, because I feel like um, at the end of The Terminator, uh, we see Sarah Connor start recording audio cassette tapes to give to John, and I feel like that might be part of the inf- inspiration behind all the Walkman stuff going on in this and especially in MGSV. I mean, he's definitely a fan of that aesthetic, nothing else. Yes, yes. Uh, Terminator is obviously one of the biggest influences on Metal Gear. More T2 than anything else, but I think he also loves T1. T1, which everyone obviously calls it all the time. That's what we all call it. (laughs) So we talked, uh, we mentioned that, you know, there are various teams on Mother Base and you can assign people to them. Um, There's a combat unit, which allows 100 people. Um, And then R&D, Mess Hall, Medical, and Intel, all of those house 50 uh, comrades. And then additionally, you have a waiting room of 50 for any people you freshly picked up but haven't assigned, and a sick bay of 350 for sick soldiers, which I don't get a lot of soldiers on the sick bay. It's only if like I di- I hurt them and then extracted them, but I don't I can't imagine having 350 soldiers in my sick bay. That seems excessive, yeah. yeah. Um, ditto, there's a brig uh, for any hostile. Uh, soldiers you may have recruited. Usually this happens when you extract someone while you're in alert mode. Again, 350, I can't imagine having that many, but I guess it's just the, the the rooms are big enough that you can basically just extract everyone at all times. And then if you need to make cuts, you do it after the fact. Um, I don't think you have to be choosy at all. Um, maybe that's one of the downsides or negatives about the Fulton system is 
there's really no incentive not to extract everyone, even mm-hmm. if their stats suck, um, because clearing them off the field is usually a value by itself. And then you can just go into mother base later and just cut them loose again. Uh, we, as we said, though, overall, making it making you just giving you incentive to not just uh, blankly kill people is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we talked about in our big boss episode, this actually helps tie in like a lot of the story things about like working with Amanda and Chico and building your own unit. Um, mm-hmm. It actually adds a gameplay mechanic to all that instead of it just kind of ha- being told to you it's happening in the narrative kind of thing. Personnel you acquire um, will have different labels depending on uh, you know the situation of when they occur or the type of person they are. Um, there are They get the nor- normal status if they're just like a normal soldier you acquired on the battlefield. There are volunteers who are people who either join MSF because they hear how cool Big Boss is, or you go through the recruit mission, which we'll talk about here in a minute. There are prisoners of war, basically the prisoners on maps. There are uh, COL statuses, which I don't know what that stands for, but these are secret characters that you can unlock using passwords. Um, there's trade status, like people you can literally trade with other Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker players. And then there's the unique status, which is main characters of the game, uh, like Snake, Miller, Strangelove, Amanda. And some of these can be assigned to teams. Some of them cannot be. Um, but these are like essentially the people that you can't fuck around too much with because they serve story purposes. Yeah. Uh, maybe some of those some of those uh, new recruits, they don't even hear how hot Snake was. Mm-hmm. Like, we got see, to see this, hot, this really hot guy. And then the first thing they do is they get to wrestle him half naked on a beach. It's... Really ideal for them. If that's what you signed up for, you get your money's worth right away. Oh, yeah. Speaking of money, uh, we can talk about the R&D menu, which is basically where you develop weapons and items for Snake. Uh, Not just develop new weapons and items, but you actually upgrade, uh, what's it called, existing weapons so that they're stronger, carry more ammo, the silencer lasts longer, uh, stuff like that. Money in this game is measured by GMP, which stands for Gross Military Production, uh, which should remind you of like GNP or GDP, Gross National Product, Gross Domestic Product, because now we're in like the nation building phase of the big boss storyline. So it's kind of appropriate that they use kind of like a national measure of productivity for that. Um, And so there's all sorts of weapons, you know, your standard rocket launchers, anti you know tank guns you got machine guns uzis pistols um, but you do start developing some fun items later like for example there's a rocket launcher that shoots fulton rounds um the c gustav fulton which you actually need if you want to s rank some of the harder like hind d battles um because they have like 24 enemy soldiers and you can't carry 24 fulton balloons but like one of these fulton rockets if you uh hit someone that, you know, will extract them. There's also, I think, Fulton Mines, and that can extract like four or five soldiers at once. If they walk into it, um, it traps, it knocks everyone out and then parachutes them away. So there are a lot of fun and creative weapons here. Uh, Sadly, because I had to restart my playthrough for this podcast, I couldn't carry over my PlayStation version because of the licensing issues with the HD collection. I was hoping to unlock some of these weapons to use more, but I just wasn't able to in time for this. Mm Mm-hmm. Ditto, some of the items uh, in the R&D menu are also goofy. We talked a lot about like the branded products like uh, Mountain Dew. And there used to be Dorito chips in there, but I think they had to remove the licensing. So they're just tortilla chips now, but clearly look <laughs> like Doritos in the game. 
Uh, but you know that was all feeding into some of the capitalism themes that we'll talk about in our thematic roundup. But one of the more fun aspects is the cardboard boxes in this game because there's just an evolution of the cardboard box, more or less. Up until this point, the cardboard box or even the drum can was just something you hide in. And then the drum can introduced the rolling feature, which is kind of neat. But now, like the cardboard boxes, there's the love box, which if you get in it, you can heal. And you can also fit two people in it, like in the Cos and Paz missions, uh, but also during co-op. Uh, you, there's tank boxes, both lethal tank missions or tank functions that fire, but also like stun tanks that'll just knock people out or put them to sleep. It's the missing link between infantry and artillery. <laughs> oh, God, that's good. I should have got grabbed that sound clip for that. Uh, anything you want to say about the weapons, items, cardboard boxes here? It's, it's, there's like probably too much, but also like it fits it fits the, uh, the style of game that they were making. You're just sort of fuck around, do whatever you want. Yeah. Make stuff, game. They don't go as nutso with this in the Phantom Pain, but I do like that they do include some updated um, cardboard box mechanics. Like some of them you can flip horizontally and Snake can mm-hmm. pop out on. That's, that's always fun. You could slide in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a sexy uh, like lingerie model you can put on the side of your box. So when you like stand up like that, um, the character doesn't think they're looking at a box, but like they're like, ooh, horny lady, ha, ha, ha. Um, and you can use that to distract them. So uh, we'll try to get more into that because with the Phantom Pain, I'm going to be picking up on a 450-hour um, file with that. So I'll make sure to develop all the fun items and make sure I give them a tryout. Um, not that we're talking about Phantom Pain yet, but I'm going to do my best not to use the loadout I used for the previous 400 hours, which was basically the, you know, silence tranquilizer and what? No way. That's what you use. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't believe I used the weapon that they want me to use throughout the game, but I'm going to do my best to try and use all the different weapons for the Phantom Pain. This is a lot. Mm-hmm. Just playing through it and just trying to beat the story, like through Sahelanthropus and some of the liquid stuff after you really only just need to kind of develop the weapons you want to use for those missions. Um, so I mostly just developed my Trank pistol. I made sure to have one assault rifle that was good and one rocket launcher that was good. But if you really want to S-rank all the missions and especially those like extreme Skulls missions that are after Solanthropus, you need to upgrade like all your sniper rifles and all your rocket launchers because... Um, those bosses are like pretty much impossible with even like mediocrely upgraded weapons. You need mm-hmm. like the OP sniper rifle and the OP rocket launcher to even have a chance. And even then it's still one shot kills you. Um, so you have to be really good at those. There's also a recruit mi- uh, menu option in this game, uh, which is basically you can put out a call for recruits and then you will have to uh, face them on the beach that you open up this game on and you CQC or melee fight them to submission. And if you do, they'll join your team. It's not a very developed game mode, but you know I appreciate him trying to figure out all the different ways you can recruit people for MSF. This is something that maybe, you know, now if they came back to it and redid this game, they could like, add different type of recruiting missions, or maybe you have to fight multiple people at once. Maybe that is available, but I never really use this option many than more than a couple times. And usually when the game tells me to, um, I still just extract shoulders from the field when I need people. Next we'll talk about outer ops. Outer ops are missions that you can send your combat unit on and they're not, they're like usually like more battle missions. So it's like a unit versus a unit. It's not like solo infiltration or anything like that. 
And you can either actively participate in these and it's more like a turn-based, almost like a card-based game, I would even say, in like, you know, based on your level, your weapons, your status of your soldiers, and you go up against an enemy unit. Um, there's 72 outer ops in total, and in completing them, um, they're graded on difficulty from E to S and S+. Um, and beating them, you unlock certain items and specifications for weapons, and then surviving soldiers will level up and gain experience. Um and then you can assign soldiers, uh, vehicle units, and uh, Metal Gear Zeke even if you want once you have that fully developed. And for the most part, uh, these are fun, but it, you can pretty much just OP all of these. Like if you just overstock your unit versus whatever unit you're fighting, you'll generally win. Um, and especially once you get Zeke, you can pretty much um, assign Zeke to any mission you want and you'll probably win if you have good support around it. Speaking of Zeke, another mother-based menu option is literally just building and customizing Zeke. Um, Zeke has several main parts, the walking unit, its power unit, the feet, and the head. Um, then there are optional parts that you can get by targeting those units on uh, various AI weapons, such as, uh, sorry, the jetpack you can get from, I was going to call it the Shagohad, the pupa, uh, the radome, and the railgun from the chrysalis, or armor from the cocoon, and then if you do the custom side op missions of those uh, AI weapons, they often have additional weapons or uh, objects you can grab. Like I believe you can grab the main cannon from the cocoon to put on Zeke if you beat the custom version of the cocoon. While I mentioned those optional weapons, you do need the railgun equipped to Zeke for you to actually get to the final pause mission because you need the railgun for that final pause encounter. And then you can modify Zeke as you see fit. Um, like I said, you can equip or unequip any of the optional weapons like the jetpack or the radome. Uh, and, you know, things you maybe want to consider unequipping before you fight Zeke. Um, because if you, like, totally trick out Zeke with all the tricks, that's just more attacks you have to fight. Not that you shouldn't be able to beat Zeke at this point in the game, but you can make it easier on yourself by not giving them a jetpack and armor and all that extra stuff. You can also change the color on Zeke. It basically has a primary color and a secondary color. The secondary color just kind of adds racing stripes where appropriate. And, uh, you know, it's very basic. It's like seven colors you can choose from. Um, but, you know, I like fighting a pink Metal Gear when I'm fighting Paz, so I'm glad I have that option. And then there's also a voc Vocaloid setting, so you can set a little bit of, like, what the voice sounds like when it says initiating missiles or whatever else it says during its battles. So there is a versus mode in this game, which I have not played. Didn't get a chance to play with Brian either. Probably should have. Yeah, we should have. I just didn't think I realized it at the time because I'd always ignored it uh, playing a solo. Yeah. Uh, but it's basically you can go up to six player battle mode uh, where you can do either death matches, capture missions, or base capture missions. So um, sounds like it would be fun. Probably the next time I fire up Peace Walker with Brian, which might not happen for a long time. Uh, we should definitely try this one out. Uh, if any of you have played this, uh, feel free to email us and we'll try to get that in as well. So there's a delivery system in this game uh, where you can basically send items. It'll say via cardboard box, but it doesn't really matter to other players on the internet. And I don't know much about the history of games. Was this a common thing already at this point in 2011, 2010? 
This is something you could do in a lot of like PSP games, especially. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like um, I'm thinking. Oh, not PSP, but like um, GBA Pokemon. You could do that. Okay. I think that's sort of what they're going for. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like this is. I don't want to call it standard, but I feel it's just like all over the place now. Even in Elden Ring, um, you can give items to other players. Like if I don't have a magic build, so if I have superpower magic stuff, I can just give it to someone else uh, through the internet if I wanted to. So I feel like this system has kind of expanded as we have a lot more online and interconnected play broadly. Uh, you can also trade people as well as items. So you can trade MSF personnel with other players. I assume this is... Probably not something you need to do in latter parts of the game, but maybe when you're early recruiting and you're still trying to fill out your teams, this might be a place where um, it might make sense. Again, a lot of these modes were geared towards the PSP and playing with someone else, uh, which is not an emphasis that most Metal Gear games have had. So No. Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh, but I was just imagining. As soon as you said you could trade people, I'm imagining Cosby. Like They call it chattel slavery, boss. <laughs> chattel slavery? The international slave trade. You know about the the Atlantic Passage, don't you, Snake? The Atlantic <laughs> Passage. Oh, man. Uh, well, we're actually going to Africa in the next game, and we're actually going to talk about the legacy of slavery as it affects the countries that uh, Snake and Kaz are operating out of. So Imperialism. I guess that's a great, te- <laughs> great tease for that. I'm imagining, like, brain-damaged Snake who has no concept of world history at all. Huh? <laughs> Well, I mean, the literal snake in the Phantom Pain is pretty much brain damaged snake. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, literally has a rock going into his brain. It's like the the bad guy from uh, The World Is Not Enough who has the like bullet going into his brain as he. Yes, Reynard. The famous bad guy we all think about all the time. <laughs> oh, I mean, why would you think about Reynard when you have Sophie Marceau to focus on? Or even. Or I guess Denise Richards. <laughs> or even uh, Robbie Coltrane. No, I, I like Robbie Coltrane. With, a, with a cane. He's great. So uh, lastly, and this is kind of an option that'll show up again in Metal Gear Solid 5 and was a little bit in Metal Gear Solid 4, there's just a data uh, menu option. Um, and that's basically just like all the base or all the base and team information that you've acquired, like all your recruits, logs, um, the status of your weapons. It's basically just here's a database of all the things you've done if you need a list or need to like go through and figure out what progress you have or haven't done. Uh, Metal Gear Solid 4 had a database that kind of went with it. And Metal Gear Solid 5, because you're getting so many updates um, about things you can develop, um, about things acquired in the field, side op, extra op, progress, um, it's basically just a place to keep that organized if you need to, like, wait, how far have I developed the R&D unit? Stuff like that. It's I, I don't really go to it, but I know it's there if I ever needed it you know, for anything else. Right, it's nice to have. On, yeah, it's it's just like a quest log, more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know, I think Elden Ring kind of just implemented one in a recent patch. Um, I think I don't want a quest log as a thing I look at and then I go do it. But I do like a quest log is like, okay, I'm pretty much done with this game. Is there anything I haven't knocked out that I want to make sure I do before I knock it out or move on to the next game or whatever? So that's kind of all the notes I have on the gameplay and various game modes in this. Uh, anything else you want to say about this game, Brian? I feel bad because I think we've met, we said several times it is the most gameplay focused, but I just don't really know what else to say about it. Like, I feel like it's it, the simplicity is its best strength, but it makes it hard to really discuss. I guess part of the reason that that four's lack of like just big media gameplay sections feels so bad is that the three and this are 
sandwiching it and like there's a lot to do in this one if you want mm-hmm. if you have the time and the attention spent for it you can you can play you could put a couple hundred hours with this game i imagine yeah i think you almost need to to get like some of the real extra end of uh mission tapes like uh I think in our last episode on Zero, we played the Cause Zero tape. Um, and to kind of unlock that, you have to do quite a bit of the extra ops mm-hmm. and S ranks to get that. And I think you have to at least be over 60 to 80 hours to even try. I think we'll have a similar episode or discussion when we get to Metal Gear Solid 5. And I think Metal Gear Solid 5 just has a slight advantage that it is a PS4 game. And because of that, they can put a lot more into the enemy AIs. So when you have all these weird cardboard boxes or these like pop-up impersonator big bosses that you can throw all over the place and see how enemy soldiers react to that, there's just a little more to talk about. Pretty good. Pretty good. (laughs) This game's AI is just rightfully pared down for the system it was made for. So you can't, so you can do things to fuck with guards, but the many ways and how goofy it can get, um, I think really comes through more in the Phantom Pain than it does here. We still had fun like um, tricking guards and, and surrounding them. That was fun. Mm-hmm. Whenever there was one guy left on the map, we would just like run up on opposite sides and beat the shit. <laughs> it's it's so fun. Uh, I, I I can understand why, because like this game kind of became like a stepping stone to Metal Gear Solid Five, and I can kind of see how the mechanics and the systems working here were a big reason that Kojima really wanted Metal Gear Solid Five to be a mm-hmm. thing. Because mm-hmm. um, that seemed to be like one... Because we've talked about his like kind of reluctance or hesitation or he was not going to do this game and then he was brought on because it wasn't going anywhere or he wanted to be more involved. But Metal Gear Solid Five was clearly like, I want to do this. And I think you start seeing that here with Peace Walker that he had ideas that he wanted to get out and then eventually he would with a more powerful system. Yeah, the irony of it is that the one Metal Gear sequel he wanted to make was the one he was not allowed to make in some ways. It just had to work out that way. Well, he learned his lesson. Now he's doing whatever the hell he wants with his own production company. That's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsoundsfrontiers at gmail.com and at podsandsfront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support Podcast Sounds Frontiers and all my other projects at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb. Which manuclearbomb? Hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering The Lord of the Rings over at my brother, my captain, my podcast. I'm still Brian. And I'm still a new man. I'll operate the way. Just for a couple more episodes. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember to find a way when heavens divide. When heavens divide, I will see the choices.